The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So I'm very happy to be here today and to um, have this opportunity to, uh, to spend this time with you all. So um, I thought we could just begin the day with a, a short sitting together. There will probably be a lot of words, even though the, the theme of the day is Nibbana, which obviously has con- connotations of, of peacefulness and, and silence and, uh, and ease. Um, there will be a lot of words that, uh, that uh, help... Uh, hopefully to, to guide the way there, but uh, we'll start off with a, a silent time together. So we'll probably just have a short sitting for about uh, 20 minutes or so. So please just uh, make yourselves comfortable and um, take this time to let the mind settle and uh, to focus. So the, uh, the theme for the day is... Uh, the safety of the island, and um, as I was saying just before the sitting, um, the, uh, we'll be using this uh, this book for all of the um, uh, sutta quotations for the day. So uh, we bought a number of, of copies for free distribution. So if you haven't got a, a copy with you, um, there's I think there's still a number out there on the table. So please do um, help yourself to one of those if you would like. So the um, The main idea of the day is to give a, and hopefully by the end of the day it'll (laughs) it'll have uh, been able to have this uh, effect. Is to give a bit of a sense of what the uh, the the word nibbana is referring to. Why this is the uh, central goal of of. Buddhist practice, and uh, what, is, what uh, are some of the ways that we can go about uh, realizing that and uh, living our, our lives in, in accordance with that. Um, so, uh, th- um, I did a workshop on this um, uh, years and years ago, I think probably uh, early 1998, um, uh, with the Sati Center, and that was actually the suggestion of that workshop was the uh, one of the uh, causes for this book being written, Nancy Van House, who is probably not around, I don't see her around today, but uh, she was the one who suggested the topic. Um, and so then drawing together some suited quotations and notes for that, uh, that particular event, um, uh, after a very long, gesta- a 10-year gestation, <laughs> finally uh, turned into this, this book um, that was printed a, a few months ago. Also, uh, it was an invitation by James Barras for the first Community Dharma Leaders um, program back in, in that era, 1997, um, when he said that, uh, you know, lots of people are, people are very committed to Vipassana meditation and they're very um, long, long-standing uh, members of this group. They love to do retreats, but for teachings on ultimate reality, everyone seems to go to uh, Advaita Vedanta or Dzogchen. That was the... Dharma du jour of uh, <laughs> back in the late 90s, remember? <laughs> and uh, so, um, so he said, I'm sure there must be teachings of this nature in the Theravada, but I don't know where to track them down. And we're doing this community Dharma leaders program, and if, you're, if you can come along to the first session of this, it'd be great if you could do a presentation on some of these ultimate reality teachings from the Pali Canon. 
So that was the that was the initial spark, and then the um, invitation to Sati Center was a, a follow-up from that. So that was um, part of the um, the purpose of originally drawing these teachings together was to point to some of these areas where these same kind of uh, directly liberating teachings are, are contained within the, the um, Theravada uh, classical teachings, but. Um, Maybe we're not so well known, or not so um, uh, emphasised, or not so given such uh, central uh, prominence over the ages. Um, the um, so that's a, that was a, the um, part of the, the, the story behind it. One of the, another interesting thing was um, when uh, when I was in Thailand, and probably as a larger part of the Theravada tradition. When I was in Thailand uh, back in the late 70s, and I was starting monastic life there, um, almost all of the teachings revolved around uh, methods of practice, how to, to train your mind in concentration, how to develop uh, insight, how to be mindful, and, and so on. And um, there never seemed to be any kind of discussion or talk about Nibbana, or ultimate reality, or um, that kind of metaphysical side of, of um, Buddhist teachings. And uh, it was all uh, like 99.9% of what was spoken about was about the path and, and how to to uh, to practice. And the nature of the goal was sort of, well, don't worry about that. It'll all be obvious when you get there. And they, well, I'm kind of curious, but, but this is what everyone else is doing. So, okay, you know, I'll go with that. Because I'd grown up with a, a lot of questions about you know, what's the nature of ultimate truth and who is God and or what and where and how <laughs> and if. And... Uh, and so it was striking that this was almost brushed aside in, the, in this particular Buddhist form. Then when I came to England after a couple of years in Thailand, uh, I uh, joined uh, Ajahn Sumato, who had already moved to, to Britain in, in 77, and so I, I didn't meet him until I uh, had already been a monk for a couple of years. Even though when I was finishing my university degree in London, he, he lived about a mile away. The Vihara in London was about a mile away from where I lived, but I had no idea that these monks were just around the corner. So. <laughs> Little did I know. <laughs> um, so when I came back to England and then was listening to Ajahn Sumedho teaching, then lo and behold, it was sort of ultimate reality, the unconditioned, um, and, uh, and even God making a few appearances in Dhamma talks yeah, <laughs> several times a day. And I thought, well, this is really interesting. He, he talks about ultimate truth and... and uh, Nibbana all the time. And so one of the very few times I actually asked him a question about um, uh, why he did things the way he did, he gave a very interesting answer, which was that in, um, uh, in the West, that there's a, um, many people interested in Buddhist practice, they've become disaffected with a theistic approach. They've sort of grown up with Christianity or um, Judaism. Um, and such like, and they, they become disaffected with a theistic religion, um, and so they are attracted towards Buddhism because it's a spiritual path that has you know, no God <laughs> and no soul, even better, you know. Uh, yeah. We Buddhists believe in we have no soul, and so, uh, which is easy for the English, you know. <laughs> but uh, the. Um, but so it would, it would drift from, on the one hand, sort of spirituality being either this sort of um, theistic-based uh, approach on the one side, or a um, sort of mechanistic uh, me- methodology uh, 
on the other side, a sort of mental training methodology on the other side. And when Ajahn Sumedho came to Britain, he realized that the way people related to Buddhism was that they had sort of trimmed out that, that side of uh, any kind of um, apperception, apprehension of, of an ultimate reality. It's completely out of the picture, and they sort of focused on the sort of the brilliance uh, of the Buddhist philosophy and um, was almost a kind of anti-theistic, sort of uh, pushing away that uh, metaphysical side of the teaching. So he, he's a very reflective person. He thought, well, actually, you know, in Thailand, we never talk about it very much because it's kind of an assumed reality. So it's an assumed backdrop to everything that you're doing. Well, of course, this is the purpose of it. And there's a tremendous faith in that uh, those fundamental, liberating, transcendent qualities. And um, but, So it wasn't really spoken about much, but it was there as an informing backdrop to all of the, uh, the practice that people... Followed in their devotion towards Buddha Dhamma, but he said, realized in Britain there wasn't that, there wasn't a backdrop. It was just you, you had the, the path, <laughs> and then this blank uh, sort of um, uh, not even really a, a question, but a sort of a blank non-interest in well, what's what's beyond, or even you couldn't even really use words like transcendent. People would sort of recoil at at the idea of. Um, uh, of that sort of realm. In uh, one of the famous quotations from a, I think a, a, a Cambridge, uh, from Bertrand Russell, a Cambridge philosopher, was that mysticism, it begins in mist and ends in schism. <laughs> <laughs> so it was kind of dismissive, so we don't talk about that. Or, or Russell's sort of dismissal of Wittgenstein in his later years was that, you know, he's, he's, he's sounding almost spiritual or religious. How ridiculous. You know. He's obviously devalued himself completely. So that's so Ajahn Sumedha realized, well, people need to have a, a sense for the, the numinous. Well, I wanted to try and convey a, a sense for that which is transcendent, the, the noumenon, or the, that which is um, beyond uh, our ordinary uh, perceptions, but which is the informing reality behind all of Buddha Dhamma. And so he started to, to talk more and more about Nibbana, about ultimate reality, because he saw that was a huge piece that was lacking from the sort of theistic... Uh, approach on one side and a materialistic approach towards Buddhist uh, practice on the other. So he started to emphasize that a lot. And so it was in the same spirit that Ajahn Pasana and I thought, well, uh, maybe it would be a good idea to put all these, book, these uh, teachings together into a, uh, a book and um, to, uh, to gather, and also out of our own interest, to, to draw together these, uh, these teachings and have a a, co- a little compendium shouldn't take long. I mean, we know most of where, where the things are already. You know, have it knocked out by the end of the year. That was 1998. <laughs> and uh, you know, as a, a, a wonderful um, American thinker and writer, Douglas Hofstadter, Hofstadter's law is um, that it always takes longer than you think even when you take into account that it always takes longer than you think. <laughs> so that's, that's Hofstadter's law. Very accurate. So, um, anyway, this isn't a sort of a book tour promotion, but, uh, <laughs> but the, just to, to give you a bit of a sense of where the, the, the uh, idea or the, uh, or the um, anyway, the spirit for, for today uh, comes from, and also um, hopefully that the in bringing these, these teachings into light and putting them into, into a form that people can easily digest and comprehend, it'll be uh, helpful. 
and to give more of a sense of not only that uh, transcendent or um, that uh, uh, ultimate level of the teachings, what's called paramatha satya in Pali, the ultimate reality, ultimate truth, but uh, particularly ways that that is uh, something that can be directly realized rather than just being a nice idea off in the distance that we um, write poetry about or we have kind of um, a, uh, a kind of um, admiration for, but it's something that's a, a remote and, and a vague possibility or, or a, a concept that's um, far away from us. So I'll, I'll read a few quotations now. And um, so the first one, is um, from Ajahn Sumedha's introduction. And um, he said, um, Ajahn Chah would use the words, this is little, uh, this is Roman 13, X111. Uh, Ajahn Chah would use the words, the reality of non-grasping as the definition for Nibbana. The realizing the reality of non-grasping. That helps to put it into a context because the emphasis is on awakening to how we grasp and hold on even to words like Nibbana or Buddhism or practice or Sila or whatever. It's often said that the Buddhist way is not to grasp but that can become just another statement that we grasp and hold on to. It's a catch-22. No matter how hard you try to make sense out of it you end up in total confusion because of the limitation of language and perception. You have to go beyond language and perception. And the only way to go beyond thinking and emotional habit is through awareness of them. Through an awareness of thought, through awareness of emotion. The island that you cannot go beyond is the metaphor for this state of being awake and aware as opposed to the concept of becoming awake and aware. So you might think, what? (laughs) And perhaps this is a little too early on Saturday morning to, to get the get the nuances, but this is a, a pretty crucial difference. Now, uh, later on in that same introduction, Ajahn Sumedha then quotes um, a poem from Swinburne, which he discovered in William James's book, The Rever- Varieties of Religious Experience. And this is on Roman 15, XV. Here begins the sea that ends not till the world's end. Where we stand, could we know the next high sea mark set beyond these waves that gleam? We should know what never man hath known, nor eye of man hath scanned. Ah, but here man's heart leaps, yearning towards the gloom with venturous glee from the shore that hath no shore beyond it, set in all the sea. And as he says, I found this per- in this poem an echo of the Buddha's response to Kappa's questions in the Sutta Nipata. So this is verse, this is Dr. Saratisa's translation, Sutta Nipata, uh, verses 1092-95. Next was the Brahmin student Kappa. Sir, he said, there are people stuck midstream in the terror and the fear of the rush of the river of being, and death and decay overwhelm them. For their sake, sir, tell me where to find an island. Tell me where there is solid ground beyond the reach of all this pain. Kappa, said the master, For the sake of those people stuck in the middle of the river of being, overwhelmed by death and decay, I will tell you where to find solid ground. There is an island, an island which you cannot go beyond. It is a place of nothingness, a place of non-possession and of non-attachment. It is the total end of decay and death. And this is why I call it Nibbana, the extinguished, the cool. 
There are people who in mindfulness have realized this and are completely cooled here and now. They do not become slaves working for Mara, for death. They cannot fall into his power. Now it's, it's interesting, um, this, the image of the, um, the island and um, that uh, when, you, when you reflect on this, it's both interesting that the island is both sort of in midstream, people are stuck in midstream, but then it's also an island you can't go beyond, so that seems like a bit of an odd metaphor. But um, right there, what Ajahn Sumedho is describing, and, and uh, the emphasis on, on awareness, it's pointing to um, the very fact that the, the island that you cannot go beyond, it's like, that is pointing to the quality of awareness itself. So, awareness is the island. So, I'll give you, that's the punchline of the whole day. Give it to you in, give it to you in paragraph one or two. Yeah. So the island is the quality of awareness. That is the safe ground. That being, that very knowing, that aware quality, that is the, the safe island. Because um, it's like you can't, the, you know, I can't go beyond awareness because there's awareness, the feeling of I arising and passing is that we, we know feelings and perceptions, thoughts, moods arising and passing away. So that what is pointed to in, in all these teachings and, and the, the image of the island is it's pointing to that um, experience of, of resting in awareness, being that very awareness. And that's the safe place. As you know, you've all been practicing Vipassana meditation for years and years, I'm sure. Or maybe some of you are new, but uh, at least um, have done some Vipassana meditation. So that very process that's involved in Vipassana of being that uh, that quality of uh, of aware with that detached, uh, unentangled knowing, that's a safe place, isn't it? Whether you're, what's being known is is painful and and, and agonizing in the body, or a, a painful emotion, or a delightful, you know, sweet, and blissful feeling, that which knows uh, bliss or that which knows pain is uh, is unentangled with it, essentially. And the more that we develop that insight meditation, the, the less there is a quality of an entanglement and the more there is a, uh, a clarity of knowing. Things come and go and pass through our awareness without confusion. So the, the description of Nibbana, and Nibbana is a word that comes from the um, language around heat and coolness. It literally means something like cooled down. And um, the uh, the that quality of, of coolness or, or peacefulness is uh, it's a it's a description of an experience. So nibbana is like an adjectival noun. It's like when the mind truly and completely rests in that quality of of, of awareness, then what is felt, the felt experience, is nibbana, is coolness. So um, and in fact the uh, the first, if I remember correctly. <laughs> The first words of the first chapter, what I wrote, <laughs> is um, Nibbana, so this is page 25, Nibbana, or Nirvana in Sanskrit, is a word that is used to describe an experience. When the heart is free of all obscurations and is utterly in accord with nature, ultimate reality, Dhamma, it experiences perfect peace, joy and contentment. This set of qualities is what Nibbana describes. 
The purpose of this book is to outline the particular teachings of the Buddha that point to and illuminate ways that these qualities can be realized. From the Buddhist viewpoint, the realization of Nibbana is the fulfillment of the highest human potential, a potential that exists in all of us regardless of nationality or creed. So that um, gives a, a, a basic framework for, for these concepts of, of what Nibbana is, is pointing to and then the, um, the idea or the principle of the island. So does that make sense? And that, you can see how that maps onto the, the process of, of insight meditation and how the more fully and deeply that insight is, is rooted, then the more that, that quality of coolness, uh, that, that quality of Nibbana is is uh, uh, realized, is manifested. So, if, and also as we go along during the day, people are, you're more than welcome to ask questions. And so if there's anything that I've said so far that needs any clarification or comment, please, please speak up. I think there's a microphone that wanders around for people to, to say their questions with. Just a clarification. Um, there's the use of the word heart is it synonymous with mind, or is it something, an aspect of mind? <laughs> it's sprinkled all over the book and in your teachings and everybody's teachings. So, just want to know what we mean when we say heart is free of obscuration. <laughs> well, it's it's a, a word that's used by different people in different ways. So. Generally, I use the word heart as a translation for the word chitta in Pali. And so, the uh, uh, most commonly used phraseology by the Buddha for describing liberation is saying the heart is liberated. The heart is liberated. Uh, he uses the word uh, uh, he uses the word jitta in relationship to that. So that what is liberated when there is liberation is the heart or the jitta. Um, mind um, again, people use it in different ways. Sometimes people will say mind with a, as if it has a capital M, which is, a, which is meant to be a similarly all-encompassing quality. Um, but more often in, in ordinary um, everyday usage, people tend to think of mind as the thinking mind. Um, there's no hard and fast definitions. Um, you can, and people have written whole books on what's the difference between mano, jitta and vijnana, mind, heart and, and, uh, and consciousness. But um, generally, the Buddha used fairly broad brush uh, approaches towards language, but um, the the way I tend to use the words if, uh, heart is um, uh, generally what I'll use in terms of referring to the entire field of mental activity, mm-hmm. uh, including both the conditioned and the unconditioned aspects. Oh, okay. And so, mind or mano often is referring just to the conditioned aspects of mental activity. So. Um, the, uh, um, when the mind as a, a sense organ, like eye, eye perceives light, ear perceives sound, um, mano, the, the mind organ, perceives mental objects, uh, dhamma with a small d. So, but jitta or heart is generally that sort of more encompassing uh, description of the entire mental field. So, it's actually um, the self with the capital S which includes everything, the source, or whatever it is? Uh, not really in Buddhist language, maybe in the, okay. in the more the Vedanta yeah. language, yeah. but uh, yeah, we don't have self in here. <laughs> <laughs> no soul, no self. Right. 
so, but it's all just vernacular, really, because in terms of that, there is a very close mapping. I mean, in a way, it's just a usage of words. So, the way that that um, uh, say someone like Sri Ramana Maharshi would use the word self is um, is very different from the 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 meaning or the, the sense of it that someone using it and say um, in a Buddhist language. So it's you have to look at the context in which words are, are used. So, but within the general Buddhist vernacular, then we don't, at least in the Theravada world, the idea of a big self or a self with a capital S is is generally not mm-hmm. not used. So the capital self is not the island. Then. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, I leave that for you to find out. Uh, it seems like the goal of Nibbana is, is very uh, difficult or very obscure, but um, there's a controversy over momentary Nibbana. I don't know if you're planning on getting into that later, like experiencing the moment mm-hmm. of complete letting go, and do you have any comments to make on that? Um, well, it's a question of degree, uh, to, to me and my, my experience, it's a question of degree. So it's... Um, the, the the word for momentary is tadangana, and uh, so they talk about momentary liberation, tadangana vimuti or tadangana nibbana, and um, to me that's a totally valid quality. I mean, it's not, it's not saying it's not real nibbana because it's also when the the Buddha says well, when there's an interesting uh, exchange um, where the Buddha is asked to define deathlessness and uh, and the, the the lead up to it it sounds like he's going to go he's going to launch into a big exegesis on this topic and ananda comes to ananda comes to the buddha and uh, is asking so, uh, about what is the nature of deathlessness and the Buddha just says, the cessation of grasping is deathlessness. Mm-hmm. And that's the kind of place where Ajahn Chah would be quoting that. Like, the rea- Nibbana is the reality of non-grasping. So, at, at the mo- I would say that at the moment that the, the heart is free from grasping, then there is the possibility of, uh, of realizing deathlessness. Not as a sort of total enlightenment forever, Experience, but just in that moment, then that quality of of the deathless or the um, the transcendent qualities of of our nature can be realized, because the, it's the grasping that's obscuring it. And so that in that moment when there's no grasping, right there, um, in that that peaceful, open quality, then um, that uh, can. I wouldn't say that as soon as the mind stops grasping, then you know, nibbana is fully realized. But that, that's like a, a momentary nibbana. It's right there. When the mind is free of grasping, what remains is the deathless. I mean, that's a, a somewhat sweeping statement, but it's 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 pretty accurate. And that um, that also is what you can notice in in meditation that when uh, when you are say you you take hold of something like this, you know, like this bell striker, and you. You're, you're in a state of tension, you're grasping it. So like my, my arm is shaking, my body's agitated, there's a tension, even as I'm speaking. And then you stop. I've stopped grasping. 
And in that moment, uh, when the grasping stops, what's, there's a natural peacefulness. The mind is paying attention. Uh, in that, and in a moment of letting go, there's no sense of self. There's alertness. And uh, so that, uh, that, you know, it's, in a way, it's like the, the curtains are parting. And that quality of, of, of peacefulness, purity of mind, and a sense of, of um, selflessness, or things being not self, are right there. Now, what happens is that we miss that because it's not interesting. Because we have, if you, if, you, if you watch this process, then in that moment of relief, the, there's a sense of, ah, one, two. <laughs> and by about the third second, it's like, okay, so um, what else is happening around here? You know, like, uh, you know what's, uh, oh, what's on iTunes this morning? You know? And... Uh, you know, you're looking for the next thing that's interesting because peace is not interesting. It doesn't catch our attention. Space is not interesting. So, there, uh, in a way, you could say that we uh, have the possibility of really experiencing those momentary qualities of Nibbana a lot, but we miss them because it looks just like a blank spot till the next interesting thing comes along. But if you really bring your attention to that and... Um, and focus on that, that quality, what remains when the grasping stops, then you are really able to, to realize Nibbana. So one of the, the things that is in the Four Noble Truths um, that uh, Ajahn Sumedha would often emphasize is that um, each, of the, each of the four truths has a particular way in which it's to be worked with. So like suffering, dukkha is to be apprehended. Its cause is to be let go of. Cravings to be let go of. The ending of dukkha, dukkha niroda, is to be realized. Sachikata bhanti is the Pali. It is to be realized. And then the path is to be developed. So, to be realized means you've you, you got to notice it. You have to develop that, oh look, there's no dukkha. Because if you don't realize it, if there isn't that bringing the attention to it and fully cognizing it, then it doesn't seem like anything. Because it isn't anything. It's a place of no thingness. <laughs> you don't notice it because it doesn't grab your attention. Because the, se- the, the senses are geared towards what's interesting. Can I eat it? Can I mate with it? Is it going to eat me? <laughs> you know, that's what our senses. Are ge- that's what our ancestors. You know, back to the zooplankton, where that's what their sense, uh, senses developed to do. Can I eat it? Can I mate with it? Is it going to? Is it going to eat me? Do I need to be afraid? Do I need to get hungry? Or do, you, do, you, do I need to get attracted? You know, and that's that's the conditioning of the senses. It doesn't say, "Oh, look, there's that really interesting piece of the carpet just next to Cynthia and in front of Gita." I say, like, "Oh no, Cynthia is much more interesting than the space <laughs> on top of the carpet because she's got a name. She's a human being." Yeah. Robert, he's interesting too, but the space on the you know just above the carpet in front of Robert. What's to say about that other than including it in a Dhamma talk? You know? <laughs> you know, space is not interesting. And so that the, the more that we can train ourselves to notice that, um, that quality of peacefulness, the more that we realize Nibbana. You know, whenever we're training ourselves to stop grasping, letting go of feelings of, of self and other and you know, all the different domains of grasping, then... Um, 
that we're able to, to notice that quality of peacefulness that's there. If you're looking at sort of realizing Nibbana as some sort of grand um, sort of finale at the end of Act 5, you know, and, you miss, and, and we're thinking, oh, it's some sort of wonderful thing that's going to happen at the end of a long retreat when I've really got my practice together. You know, it, we're missing all of the other opportunities to, to realize that, that are happening there right at the traffic light, right as you're waiting for the kettle to boil. You know, it's, it's always here, uh, but we miss it. And so that um, I would say that those, the, the, the deathless, the, you know, the ultimate reality is always here. It's not that um, it's sort of only available on certain dates or <laughs> in certain situations. And those qualities of a momentary nibbana are just uh, those opportunities where the obscurations that that, uh, that occlude that fall away, and that when there are other different stages of enlightenment, which hopefully we'll talk a little bit about as the day proceeds, they are certain um, benchmarks whereby um, beyond that point, then you you are not able to the the, the the awareness of that fundamental quality of, of the Dhamma, the presence of, of ultimate truth, that something, it's so well known or so fully experienced, that quality of, of clarity and peacefulness has been so regularly and completely recognized that you can't forget it, like you can't unlearn how to ride a bicycle. It's like something just can't forget that. You know, it's just, it's embedded. And so that the, the levels of enlightenment, like stream entry, once returning, non-returning, and arahatship are those benchmarks where, whereby the, that insight is so deeply uh, rooted, and the the, uh, the ephemeral nature of experience is so clearly understood that you, that you can't kind of unsee that. So then, uh, the the full realization of nibbana, if you like, is something that would come with arahatship, here yeah, where that's with total enlightenment, um, but. It's, um, it doesn't uh, devalue that, the, the experience of that same quality that's, that's, that is known prior to that full sort of irreversible realization. So like a, a brief glimpse of the truth is, is the same truth, whether it's a brief glimpse or a, or a, a sort of an unrelenting you know, uh, realization. It's the same uh, quality that's being known. What, what interests me is, is the middle area. You have the, the momentary, mm-hmm. you have the ultimate nibbana. Mm-hmm. And most of the time it seems that in, in the middle area when people go through these uh, midlife transitions <laughs> where they live such compressed professional lives, and I would use myself as, as an example, uh, for 15 years, I practiced. Um, I was in healthcare, very successful, and uh, but I, I got to a place where I was burning out emotionally, mentally, and uh, started getting some health issues. So I went through a process of disengagement, and to the degree that I was willing to let go and not allow myself to be labeled as giving up too soon that I'm still young in my career, things started to happen in a, in a very positive way. I would say it would be a, a, a personal transformation that went on, the, the feeling of that exalted feeling for like a, a few years, a couple of years. 
then it left. And after that, it's grasping to try to get it back. So is there that state in the middle, uh, more than just the momentary glimpses that, that all of us get? Uh, is that something that is spoken about in, in the teachings at all? Uh, yeah, the, certainly those, those kinds of, um, of experiences are, are talked about. Um, they, more often it's in terms of the different levels of enlightenment, like the stream entry uh, and um, being a once returner and so forth. But um, that kind of experience where everything sort of comes together and life seems, seems grand and sort of before the, the, uh, the glamour wears off, that's not talked about so much. That I mean, it's a common experience. Yes. <laughs> but it's not, to my knowledge, it's not really talked about so much in the scriptures. But um, it, it's a uh, it's a common enough pattern where um, inspiration wanes, or the the um, the uh, um, the power of an an, an, uh, an initiate of sort of beginning insight. Uh, like the brightness of that diminishes, and then the um, uh, other unfinished business starts to m- come into the picture. Often it's talked about in, in terms of um, uh, the power of concentration. And so the Buddha would talk about that, what, that sort of thing as that samadhi, or the strength of concentration, is suppressing the hindrances. It's the kind of language. And you can think of that as your unfinished business is it's all on hold but you still haven't closed that account. Mm-hmm. And that, that's all still waiting because you're, you're, you're currently running on this particular um, uh, sort of enthusiastic splurge. But uh, when that, uh, because of the, the, the power of, of concentration and bright states of mind, it's, it's very pleasing, it's, it's very invigorating, and it brings a lot of happiness. So you think, well, this is great. Mm-hmm. Wow, this is, things have really come together. This is marvelous. But then there's all those other unclosed accounts that are still, the, the, uh, the numbers are still there. And so then as that, that sort of, the, uh, that which was supporting the concentration and the brightness and happiness of the mind, that, as that subsides, then that other unfinished stuff uh, emerges. So that's talked about quite a lot. But now, that's more of the language that it's, it's spoken of in. Isn't it true, uh, on retreat we often talk about, the subject of, of Nibbana comes up, but the, te- the, uh, the lay teachers primarily say that in the teachings that the Buddha actually discouraged uh, the monks from, uh, in terms of entertaining any questions about it because it took you away from the present moment. If you're thinking of something to attain, the state of mind. It's taking you away from being present. Look, that's uh, part of it. It was, it was not so much not encouraging people to think about Nibbana. It was more creating speculations about right. uh, ultimate reality or life after death or past lives and that kind of thing. So like in the Malunkya Putta Sutta, in the, the, um, uh, the middle-length discourses, you know, Malunkya Putta, he has this whole list of questions he wants to ask the Buddha, and, and he says, and you know, what what happens to an enlightened being after they die, and you know, how was the world created, and so on, and, and he says, and if you don't tell me, I'm uh, I'm going to disrobe, so there, and, and so he tries to threaten the Buddha that he's going to leave him if uh, the Buddha doesn't answer the questions, and uh, and so then the 
it's that kind of thing where the, the Buddha uh, then spells it out. Why don't um, I'm not answering these questions. I never answer these questions, Malunkiyaputta. And why don't I? Because these questions don't lead towards liberation. So it's more like the sort of uh, the mental proliferation around those issues. But um, the uh, the so it's like the speculative, chattering. Um, proliferating mind that he's, he's pointing to discouraging um, rather than having a goal because it's certainly directing the mind towards peacefulness, towards uh, realization, towards insight is a very helpful thing. You know, we, we use goal direction a lot but you have to use it in a, in a skillful way. Okay, thank you. Okay, so one more and then we'll, we'll carry on with. So this place, Nibbana, has not a feeling state connected to it, like you wouldn't say it's pleasant. Um, um, I, you mentioned a little that prior to this state, maybe feeling pleasant. But so that's one question: is it? Is there any feeling state connected to it? And the, the second part of the question is the well, it's a whole different question actually. That the Tibetans talk about the clear light of reality. And is that the same thing? <laughs> um, well, actually, the the uh, yeah, there is a feeling tone associated with nibbana, and um, the uh, the the very final passage in the entire book, the closing, the denouement, uh, Act Five, Scene Five, <laughs> is um, you can find on page three hundred and fifty, and this is talking about um, in the Buddha. Uh, is uh, talking about uh, an arahant who's just passed away, Nidaba um, the Malian. He says, Just as the born is not known of the gradual fading glow given off by the furnace heated iron, as it is struck with the smith's hammer, so too there is no pointing to the born of those perfectly released who have crossed the flood of bondage to sense desires and attained unshakable bliss. So um, uh, that's one of the very few... Um, Instances where the Buddha talks about like someone who's realized nibbana, like what the experience is like even after after the death of the body. But um, the uh, uh, in the in the ordinary situation where one is the body's still alive and someone realizes nibbana, then it's it's um, the, there are phrases used like it's the it's the perfection of happiness or it is it is like complete happiness or it's unshakable bliss. Um, I mean, that's the one quote that we use in that particular, which is um, after double the Malians passed away. But those kind of qualities are, are there. So, but it's, um, it's seen as a kind of um, a happiness that is, is beyond uh, a kind of worldly pleasure. So I'd say ordinary worldly happiness would be getting what you want. That kind of um, that kind of quality, but the the happiness of nibbana is the happiness of not wanting anything. The, uh, there is a there's nothing lacking, so it's a, a different kind of a quality. And Ajahn Buddha Dasa talks about that uh, a lot in his teachings. So there are two kinds of happiness. So it's certainly a it's not less like a blank feeling, <laughs> and that is a, a, like a kind of the most profound contentment and, and happiness that's there. 
Sometimes we, we, we sort of hear a term like coolness or cooling down and think, ooh, that's a, a little bit off-putting. But, um, um, and that you know, being hot <laughs> is something that can be uh, uh, sort of admirable or desirable, but it's, uh, it's also based on the, the idea that uh, the Buddhist teachings came from India, which is a land of sizzling heat. And so shade and coolness is deeply attractive. And so, whereas, uh, which is also something that uh, that is uh, pointed out in the, the chapter "Fire, Heat, and Coolness," which is the second chapter. Um, I said um, it's important, perhaps, to bear. This is page thirty-nine. The Buddha taught in India that a land of blazing heat, and in such environments, coolness can easily gather to it an aura of intrinsic goodness and attractiveness. This, notwithstanding the quest for tapas or spiritual heat. In the northern regions where English language originated, warmth takes on a similar aura of desirability. The source of oppression and danger is not the merciless sun, but the chill bitterness of winter through the dark, cold and empty desolation, as T.S. Eliot has it in East Coca. So, that kind of... Um, if you bear in mind your own conditioning when we relate to these words. Now, um, on speaking of definitions... It's also interesting um, that Arjun Tunisro has pointed out that the, the physics of fire, as it was understood in, in India at that time, is also related to the, the, the usage of the word Nibbana. Because the Buddha was the first one to use the word Nibbana as an embodiment of the spiritual goal. And it's a kind of counterpoint, because the, the yogis of his time and today, that their, a lot of their ascetic practices and self-mortification was around generating what's called tapas, or heat. So a yogi or an ascetic is called a tapasin, someone who practices tapas or austerities. So you're trying to create this, this psychic power, this spiritual power that's called heat. So the Buddha was being kind of shocking and revolutionary by saying, no, 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 we don't want tapas, we want nibbana. And it's a way of catching people's attention. Like, what? No, no, but heat's good. And he said, no, 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 coolness. We want to cool down. And so that that, um, as a way of uh, getting people's attention, to, to say, uh, look, we've been looking in the wrong direction. So this is um, quotation 2.2 uh, that uh, Ajahn Tanisaro, um, uh cites here. Nibbana, which, gen- which literally means the extinguishing of a fire, derives from the way uh, the physics of fire was viewed at his, at his, the Buddha's time. As fire burned, it was seen as clinging to its fuel in a state of entrapment and agitation. When it went out, it let go of its fuel, growing calm and free. Thus, when the Indians of his time saw a fire going out, they did not feel that they were watching extinction. Rather, they were seeing a metaphorical lesson in how freedom can be attained by letting go. And then the next passage. The image of an extinguished fire carried no connotations of annihilation for the early Buddhists. Rather, the aspects of fire that to them had significance for the mind-fire analogy are these. Fire, when burning, is in a state of agitation, dependence, attachment and entrapment, both clinging and being stuck to its sustenance. Extinguished, it becomes calm, independent, indeterminate and unattached. It lets go of its sustenance and is released. This same nexus of events applied to the workings of the mind occurs repeatedly in canonical passages describing the attainment of the goal. Now that's a kind of interesting thing. So it's like the fire element is, uh, is released from its fuel. And it's also interesting that the word fuel 
in Pali is upadana. And the word for clinging is upadana. Exactly, it's not, the, it's not two different words spelt the same, it's the same word. So the word for clinging and the word for fuel is the same. So when the, the Buddha uses the word, he, he was brilliant in his use of language. And there's many words that he coined that weren't really in use in, in the same way before his time. And this is one of them. So the use of Nibbāna as a, a, a way of embodying the spiritual goal is brilliant because he's, he had the insight that it's through non-clinging, through letting go, that, that, that ultimate spiritual reality is realized. Uh, and so then it, uh, he saw it as, oh, this is when, when there's no more fuel or when the things are not burning, that when the heart is not sort of agitated and, and inflamed, um, that's when that, that truth is realized. So he, he adopted the, using the word for coolness to point to that, uh, that process. And, through, and then seeing that the, the means whereby that was recognized was through non-clinging, through letting go. Now another definition that we, or set of definitions that we have here, um, uh, it's a lengthy passage, but I'll read it out because it's Bhikkhu Bodhi being incredibly brilliant, as he almost always is. And um, this is part of his introduction to the Majima Nikaya. Um, so this is... Um, this is in, back in chapter 1, so this is uh, page 36-37. The state that supervenes when ignorance and craving have been uprooted is called Nibbāna, Sanskrit Nirvana. And no conception in the Buddha's teaching has proved so refractory to conceptual pinning down as this one. In a way, such elusiveness is only to be expected since Nibbāna is described precisely as, quote, profound, hard to see and hard to understand, unattainable by mere reasoning. Unquote. Yet, in this same passage, the Buddha also says that Nibbāna is to be experienced by the wise, and in the suttas, he gives enough indications of its nature to convey some idea of its desirability. The Pali Canon offers sufficient evidence to dispense with the opinion of some interpreters that Nibbāna is sheer annihilation. Even more sophisticated... The even, even the more sophisticated view that Nibbāna is merely the destruction of defilements and the extinction of existence cannot stand up under scrutiny. Probably the most compelling testimony against that view is the well-known passage from the Udana that declares, with reference to Nibbāna, that, quote, there is an unborn, unbecome, unmade, unconditioned, the existence of which makes possible escape from the born, become, made and conditioned. The Majima Nikaya characterizes Nibbāna in similar ways. It is the, quote, unborn, unaging, unailing, deathless, sorrowless, undefiled, supreme security from bondage, unquote, which the Buddha attained on the night of his enlightenment. Its pre-eminent reality is affirmed by the Buddha when he calls Nibbāna the supreme foundation of truth, whose nature is undeceptive and which ranks as the supreme noble truth. So there are actually five noble truths. <laughs> Nibbāna cannot be perceived by those who live in lust and hate, but it can be seen with the arising of spiritual vision, and by fixing the mind upon it in the depths of meditation, the disciple can attain the destruction of the taints, or the asavas, also variously translated as outflows or corruptions. The Buddha does not devote many words to a philosophical definition of Nibbāna. 
One reason is that Nibbana, being unconditioned, transcendent and supramundane, does not easily lend itself to definition in terms of concepts that are inescapably tied to the conditioned, manifest and mundane. Another is that the Buddha's objective is the practical one of leading beings to release from suffering. And thus his principal approach to the characterization of Nibbana is to inspire the incentive to attain it and to show what must be done to accomplish this. To show Nibbana as desirable, as the aim of striving, he describes it as the highest bliss, as the supreme state of sublime peace, as the ageless, deathless and sorrowless, as the supreme security from bondage. To show what must to show what must be done to attain Nibbāna, to indicate that the goal implies a definite task, he describes it as the stilling of all formations, the relinquishing of all acquisitions, the destruction of craving, dispassion. Above all, Nibbāna is the cessation of suffering, and for those who seek an end to suffering, such a, desi- such a designation is enough to beckon them towards the path. So, well done, Bhikkhu Bodhi. <laughs> I think just that would be enough for the whole day, I think, <laughs> in, in some ways. But, um, and then so many of these passages we'll, we'll revisit um, during the, the course of the, the day, but I, I felt that was a, a really um, a superb synopsis of these, these main teachings uh, about that and gives a, a, a also a, a healthy overview of those, those different dimensions. It also refers to those elements of bliss and happiness. Interesting reference to the fifth of noble truth, but how is it different from the third? Hmm? The cessation of suffering. Um, I mean, is, was that just a <laughs> Well, that's sort of an interesting thing to explore in your own meditation. <laughs> um, often, dukkha niroda is taken to be synonymous with with. Uh, with nibbana, and uh, so it, really, it's it's uh, it's uh, one way you can read that same passage is saying actually that that third noble truth is the supreme one. So of of the four, you can say that's the that's the uh, um, the supreme one. But it's really it's also the only time in that sutta Majima 140, the exposition of the elements. That's the only time that the Buddha actually uh, refers to nibbana as the in terms of, uh, of the Four Noble Truths. So it's just a kind of unique little reference that's, that's there. But often that uh, Dukkha Niroda is seen as synonymous with the realizing of Nibbāna. There's one way at the back there. So if you can wait for the microphone. morning. I don't know if this is an aside or if it ties in directly with what you're talking about, but uh, one of the um, precepts I, I get and enjoy from Buddhism is the interconnectedness of things, mm-hmm. apparently disparate things. Um, when you had us turn to page 350, I mm-hmm. noticed on the opposite page there was a quote from Yogi Berra. <laughs> and I never would have imagined a quote from Yogi Berra in a Buddhist book. And um, I'm not sure how many people here are familiar with Yogi Berra. But um, he was this famous manager for New York Yankees and a player. But I think he got the name Yogi from watching cartoons about Yogi the Bear. And now it's made me think maybe the word Yogi has something to do with the Buddhist 
definition of yogi. So I was just struck by the interconnectedness of, of everything. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, the universe is filled with strange loops. That was actually it was an afterthought of Ajahn Pasna. He thought uh, at the end of all of this philosophy and, and refinement, um, the uh, uh, that that kind of a, a um, an observation on life of Yogi Berra. If you don't know where you're going, you'll find out. You'll wind up somewhere else. <laughs> If we're, if we're, this is indicating that we're now leaving the realm of words behind. <laughs> so, uh, but it was a nice little sign-off. You know. Okay, so um, let's uh, carry on a little bit. And um, the um, one of the the chapters that we the book is divided into into several different chunks. So the first part is definitions. Um, and then after that, we sort of go into the, the second section, which tries to map out the sort of the landscape of um, the, the Buddhist uh, approach to the um, what do we mean by words like the unconditioned or, or ultimate reality, and, and uh, what's that referring to? So there's uh, the the next chapters uh, are all referring to that uh, that domain, but from slightly different angles. So there's uh, the the approach of um, of the Buddha in many different circumstances, he uses different ways of, uh, of approaching this area. And so, um, one of the principal ones is in the, uh, is through the teachings on not self. And so that, there's a whole chapter here, chapter five, called To Be or Not To Be? Is that the question? <laughs> and so that, uh, begins on page 85. So there's, there's many teachings in there. So I thought in terms of, of mapping out this terrain, um, that's a, a useful area to, to begin with. And so um, the, uh, the teachings on, on not-self, because uh, as everyone here who's been involved in practicing vipassana meditation, insight meditation, you know that this is in a way the, the, the main engine of wisdom development in, in Buddhist practice is exploring the, the insights into uh, uns, uh, unsatisfactoriness and uh, into uh, uncertainty or change uh, and also to not-self. Whereas dukkha and anicca are unsatisfactoriness or suffering and, uh, and change, uh, tran- uh, transiency or uncertainty, these are pretty easy, tangible <laughs> um, concepts to, to get the mind around, the whole realm of not-self and what that means, what the teachings of anatta refer to can be a bit of a murky area and uh, also again Ajahn Tanisro has, has written and has taught a lot on this area very very helpfully and so some of his teachings on this are uh, extremely um, uh, brilliant and, and insightful so um, that uh, and I know he's taught here at the Sati, Sati Center group many many times and so that uh, I, I, I'm guessing that you're probably well informed and have a good basis of understanding in this area but it, um I thought with today also you could look at some of the sutta quotations that refer to that same uh, teachings on on not self and um, how the Buddha really pinpoints this as of all of the different kinds of clinging that obstruct the realization of nibbana uh, that uh, all the upadanas uh, that are there the, probably the most subtle and tricky is the cling it was what's called atavad upadana or the clinging, clinging to the concepts and, and constructions of 
self of Atta, or Atman in Sanskrit. <laughs> so it's the Atavada Upadana, and Vada is the same as Theravada, like the way of. So it means Atavada means like the way of the self, <laughs> the the way of me and mine, following the path of I, me, mine, and that kind of clinging. So I, I thought the first um, passage to look at is um, page eighty-six. Is from again from this uh, sutta, the Majima 140, which is an incredibly rich and wonderful teaching. That was the one that mentioned the, the supreme noble truth. And um, this is uh, the Buddha talking to um, uh, a monk. Actually, he'd been, he's been uh, sharing a, a, a comment. The Buddha arrived in, in, uh, in town late in the evening and didn't have a place to stay. Uh, couldn't get to the monastery, so he stayed in this, asked to stay in this potter's uh, uh, firehouse, and there was already another yogi, another wanderer staying there. And even though this wanderer thought of himself as a disciple of the Buddha, he didn't actually recognize who it was that came in, in the middle of the night to share the room with him. So they get into this dialogue, and then, so the monk, he's the Buddha's talking, who doesn't realize that, that he's actually talking to the Buddha. And so the Buddha gives him this really great Dhamma talk, and it's only back, he's, when he's three quarters of the way through. And he's, he's talking very casually to the Buddha, like, oh, hi, buddy, you know. Yeah, right, you know. Because he thinks of himself as a disciple of the Buddha and he's actually much wiser than this other guy. And then about three quarters of the way through, he realizes, oh, dear. <laughs> I think I know who I'm sharing this room with. Yeah. <laughs> so he hits the floor and starts apologizing. But this, so this is within that same, that same discourse. Um, so this is... Uh, Quotation 5.2 Bhikkhu, I am is a conceiving. I am this is a conceiving. I shall be is a conceiving. I shall not be is a conceiving. I shall be possessed of form is a conceiving. I shall be formless is a conceiving. I shall be percipient is a conceiving. I shall be non-percipient is a conceiving. So those latter ones are are all about life after death concepts and and speculations, um, sort of different states of of uh, post-mortem uh, realms. Conceiving is a disease. Conceiving is a tumor. Conceiving is a barb. By overcoming all conceivings, bhikkhu, one is called a sage at peace. And the sage at peace is not born, does not age, does not die. They are not shaken and are not agitated. For there is nothing present in them by which they might be born. Not being born, how could they age? Not aging, how could they die? Not dying, how could they be shaken? Not being shaken, why should they be agitated? Simple, right? <laughs> and so this is also another instance where the Buddha is talking about uh, death uh, as uh, not so much as a um, physical death, but a sort of psychological death on, on birth, also not as a physical birth, but uh, but as a, a psychological birth, like being born into some project or some idea or some born into an opinion or something of that nature. So it's, it's, not, um, it's talking more about that, that kind of process of, of buying into things, being born into things and, and then dying with disappointment or uh, dying on stage. Yeah. Uh, and that's kind of psychological ego, what you could call ego death. That's uh, one of the instances where he talks in, that, in those terms. So there's um, the qualities of uh, of not self. Um, uh, again, this is an area that um, 
there's a, a lot of misunderstanding, or oftentimes people say, well, Buddhists believe that we have no self, or, or no soul. <laughs> it's less common these days. But, uh, uh, but it's uh, one of the things that Ajahn Tanisro has, has uh, emphasized very, very helpfully is that, um, and this is exactly the same way that Ajahn Chah would talk about these, these principles, is that these are tools, that, particularly uh, the insight into not-self, but also into anicca, into to change or uncertainty, and into dukkha, unsatisfactionness. These are tools which we use to unpick presumptions that we make about, about life and about who and what we are. And, um, and so they're not like a, a, a belief system in themselves. It's not like a, I believe in dukkha or, <laughs> or I believe everything is impermanent. I believe I don't have a self. It's more taking the, the, this, this tool, then we examine what the things are that we, we believe ourselves to be. Or, or we, we pick it up and, and challenge our assumptions that something is permanent or stable or is, is predictable. And so that they're, they're tools for examining our opinions and habits and patterns of, of thinking and belief. That's what they're for. So it's like a set of, of socket wrenches or, you know, or kitchen, kitchen knives and graters and things. They're, they're a, a, a toolkit rather than a, a, a set of beliefs to, to hang on to. And so in that respect, it's supporting what's called wise reflection. The Pali is Yoniso Manasikara. And this process of, or, or the, another virtually identical word is Dhamma Vichaya. And so these are extraordinarily important qualities for the development of wisdom. So this is the faculty of mind that is able to, um, is basically the, pat- the pattern recognition aspect of, of our mind, seeing what fits in with reality and how things work. So uh, Dhamma Vijaya literally means um, the... Uh, investigating reality or investigating the Dhamma, the true nature of things. Uh, Yoniso Manasikara means um, bringing attention to the origin or to the source, uh, attending to the root of things. Um, so that these are ways of, how does this, looking at something like, what's happening here? How does this work? How does A lead to B? What's the connection between C and D? How does this fit together? It's that exploratory, interested, investigative pattern recognizing capacity that, that we have and so that these um, basic uh, ca- the, the, the basic characteristics of existence and each dukkha anatta these are tools to support that quality of investigation that's what they're for that's how they work so it's not just a, a, a thing to believe but a way of uh, picking up our habits of thinking and exploring them and, and, and seeing them more clearly like a a set of lenses or microscopes and, uh, or something that we can open things up and, and examine how they work. So when the, the, this, um, uh, this teaching, when the Buddha says, I am is a conceiving, I am is a, uh, an affliction and so forth, um, the, uh, he's pointing to that, that, that way that any, uh, if, if we look at it, we explore, when we, we examine that, that we see that any possible internal or external qualities that says, you know, I am a man, or I am English, or I am American, or I am teaching at Sati Center, <laughs> we see that even matter-of-fact realities like that, that we can see that those are presumptions, or they're, just, they're half-truths, or, or that they, they can't be any kind of absolute reality to that. They're conventions. Um, and what is Sati Center? 
Right. Sati Center, as, and actually also, again, plugging this book endlessly, but um, there's a, I, I describe an incident where it's in the chapter called um, uh, The Unconditioned and Non-Locality, the, un, uh, the, uncon- the Unborn and Non-Locality. And um, it describes an incident that's supposed to be tr- a true event, I'm told, by someone who was a, uh, a lecturer at, at um, an Oxford college. And apparently there was uh, uh, an encounter on the street in Oxford where this a tourist, an American tourist, came up to this professorial type, so clutching her map of Oxford and saying, excuse me, sir, but can you direct me to the university? Yeah, I can't, I'm, I'm, I'm here in Oxford. I've been here in Oxford all day. I can't find the university. And he said, madam, the university has only metaphysical and not actual existence. <laughs> there is no place where the university, where the university is, because uh, Oxford has separate colleges. There actually is no Oxford University as a place. There are individual colleges that are scattered all around the town. So you have Somerville College, you have Worcester College, you have Magdalen College, you have Balliol College. They all exist, and they uh, and the university is a, a, an agreement by all the colleges to call themselves Oxford University. And the university issues degrees, and the university um, drafts exam papers, but it doesn't exist in any place. So, exactly like Sati Center. <laughs> Sati Center has only metaphysical, but not actual existence. Right? Sati Center uses the IMC building, but it doesn't actually exist in its own, it doesn't have its own place, so it's unlocated. This is very dharmic. <laughs> this is a wonderful example. That, uh, and so that Sati Center is a conceiving. Right? <laughs> QED. It's a conceiving. <laughs> so if we think, if we believe that Sati Center has a true and actual permanent existence, we will suffer. <laughs> it's, a, it's a very convenient agreement. If we didn't have it, we wouldn't be here today. Um, it's not saying it's worthless, but it's like the, when we take a conceiving and we buy into it and say, I am this, this is real, this is absolutely true, this is substantial, then we create the causes of dukkha because that we're taking a conventional truth and we're imputing, we're imbuing it with more substance and solidity, more absoluteness than it really has. We're imbuing it with a, a reality it can't, a solidity it can't possess. So that um, when, the, when the Buddha's talking about this kind of area, he's saying, look, you, you use the insight into anatta, look, that when we say, I'm a man, or this is sati center, um, that's a convention, this is a convenient fiction that we use to get through the day. When you get to the, when you get to the immigration, and you, you, or you get stopped on the, by the highway patrol, you don't say to the officer, all dharmas are not self. <laughs> You say, good morning, officer, and you hand over your license, you know, which has got your, a name on it. You know. And so that, you know, one of the interesting things to, to meditate on in this respect and to, to use to investigate this feeling of, of I am, there's different ways of, of using it, but in, in, and I'm sure you have your own styles of vipassana practice, but developing this quality of, of investigation, dhamma uh, vichaya and so on, you can deliberately uh, investigate that f- this feeling. So just uh, when your mind is quite calm and focused, rather than just tracking everything in terms of this is anicca, this is dukkha, this is anatta, just deliberately bringing up the words 
I am. I am. And when you do that, doesn't it feel strange? And even better, when you, if you, in the quietness of your own mind, to say your own name to yourself. The quieter the mind is, the more weird, <laughs> the more peculiar your name stands. Like, Robert. <laughs> what the heck's a, ro- a Robert? <laughs> now, I, I, I mean, I'm just conveniently a convenient target. <laughs> Infinitely forgiving. So. But it's, it's very interesting. A word that we use all the time, and maybe even if we've changed our names, the name that we're currently using. Use it all the time. Who are you? This is who I am. And then we, we don't realize how much we're, we're concretizing that. But then when you just sort of in, invite it into the space of the mind and you say, this is what I am, or, just, or not, without any kind of commentary to it. Just that sense of, oh, <laughs> oh that, that's, that's so odd. And so, it's like a conjuring trick. And that's why the, the Buddha uses that analogy also. It's like a conjuring trick or a mirage. It's like the, through the, the sleight of hand, uh, we create ourselves as this personality. You know, I'm a monk or I'm a, an IT executive or I'm a, uh, a, uh, a yogi. <laughs> I'm, a, you know, I'm a this, I'm a that. And then in that moment, that's who we are. But then it's, uh, we, we forget that this is just fabricated. And so that what the Buddha's pointing to is like, let, let it be remembered that this is a fabrication. So we're not trying to annihilate an existent or an already existent self, but more like just seeing through the conjurer's trick and just seeing that uh, who and what we are and the, what is is actually much bigger and more uh, multidimensional than we habitually think things are. So that it's a, um, rather than just being a an interesting teaching. It's it's uh, when we are able to see that all of these cu- these conceivings uh, the, and the word for to conceive is manyati. When we see all these the, this manyati as as that, then there's a, we we're able to to in that moment that just because even in the, it's part of us that sense of oh to our ego that's a bit unsettling, but to the heart itself it's like oh the room suddenly got a bit more roomy. <laughs> Somehow I can breathe a bit more easily. Oh, life suddenly got a little less burdensome. How strange. Does that seem comparable to what you picked up? This is what I, I, I find. And then as the Buddha says, um, by overcoming all conceivings, one is called a sage at peace. And the sage at peace is not born, does not age, does not die. So that that being in that space of awareness, being that knowing of uh, of things, rather than identified with I am this and and over uh, and that is so and so over there, that then we're not born into things. We don't we don't tie our hearts to those those uh, changing qualities, and then we don't die with them. We don't die with the disappointments and and uh, and failures, but more we're able to witness things as changing patterns of nature. Another very famous verse on this theme is from the Dhammapada, which is um, 
also on page uh, 86, uh, this kind of follows right along from this, is, um, uh, and this is Ajahn Sumedha's favorite, favorite passage from the Dhammapada. Heedfulness or mindfulness is the path to the deathless. Heedlessness is the path to death. The heedful never die. The heedless are as if dead already. A bit blunt for some, <laughs> but helpful and liberating in its own right. So when he says the, the heedful or the mindful never die, it doesn't mean to say that, uh, that if, if you're mindful, your body will keep breathing forever. <laughs> but it's in exactly the same way that that, that passage about um, a sage at peace does not age, is not born, does not age, does not die. It's like that it's only the body that is born and ages and dies or, or moods are born and they, they age, they, they have their, their pattern and they die. If you're, if you're not attached to the moods or not attached to the body, then you know, uh, the body can be born and can age and die or moods can come and go, projects uh, can come and go, yeah, events can come and go. But if the heart's not tied to them, then you know, there's no... Um, uh, there's no quality of, of burdenness or disappointment associated with that. I mean, you, you don't get the, the flush of, uh, of, uh, uh, of becoming that uh, is the thing that pulls us into to birth in the first place, which is the kind of promise that the uh, so-called consumer culture runs on. Like, wow, look at that. Well, that's interesting. Wow. So that the, which we might think, well, what's wrong with that? <laughs> Especially if you're in advertising, you know, I spent my entire life trying to create that effect in people. <laughs> but uh, that is by following that blindly and, be, and being swept up by that. Oh wow, look at that! That's interesting. And then whoosh, that's the precursor to, to birth. So that, um, and then there's a certain thrill in that. There's a gratification that comes with that charge of, oh wow, look at that! Oh look, it's a new one. Oh, they've, up, they've done an upgrade. Wow. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> Windows 7. <laughs> I hear. <laughs> wow, that's great. And then being born into that thing, Windows 7 is going to make me totally happy where Vista was deeply disappointing. <laughs> right? And then, and then, dang, still doesn't quite, I wish it would, or maybe 8. <laughs> well, nine will do the trick. And so, that, um, yes, the, the Buddha pointed out, yes, there is that flush of gratification, there is that zing of, wow, look at that, that's interesting. That what's called um, asada in Pali. Asada is the word for that gratification. Yes, that does, that does uh, have a, a power in us, but also its partner is adinava, which is, uh, translates as the liability or the downside, <laughs> so that um, uh, we're not trying to turn ourselves into sort of emotionally flat data registration units, <laughs> just sort of just registering the arising and passing of phenomena uh, in, a, in a sort of blank and, and, and flat, soulless way, but more seeing how when we really bind ourselves to, to some uh, enthusiasm or some fear or some aversion, some pet peeve. It doesn't have to just be, that zing doesn't just come from what we like, it can come from what we dislike. I mean, nothing like a good enemy. <laughs> right? Nothing like a good companion. I mean, George Bush did a really great job being a sort of pet peeve for most people I know. 
he, he served a great, uh, a, a great purpose, being every people, someone that people love to hate. So that charge of becoming has a certain thrill to it, but there's a downside. There's the adinava that comes with that charge, and so that when the when the, the Buddha pointed to that, he's he saw he pointed out how, and if we're wise, we'll recognize that process and not just get blindly get caught in it. They, they've done some uh, experiments in recent years where they, they wire people up with um, uh, so ECGs and um, gal- galvanic skin responders and they send people on a shopping trip with this, uh, wired up with these different um, monitors. And the moment of maximum excitement and when the endorphins are, are going at full flush sort of <laughs> in, the, in the system, when there's a moment of ma- maximum happiness is when you hand over the credit card and just before you get the product that you've bought. When you know you're going to get it, but it hasn't quite arrived yet. And when you actually get the, the, the product in your hand, already it's a disappointment. The, the endorphins are dropping and the excitement level is... is it's the... <gasps> that's, that's the kick. That's the, that's the thing that drives the whole consuming system. So the Buddha said, get, get familiar with this. <laughs> See how this, this works. And so that the, the I am, you know, it's using a bit of a different language, but that I am is a tumor, I am is a dart. You know, it's kind of being shot with a poisoned arrow. It's, like, um, it's, it's kind of blunt or, or um, uh, aggressive language in some ways. But it's, it's pointing out, yeah, that, that's we get addicted to that same kind of pull, that, that thrill. And that, because uh, in that moment, I am this thing, I'm going to get this new Toshiba, this new, <laughs> this new product, this new thing, I'm going to get to this day on Nibbana. <laughs> you know, we get cranked up on that and then uh, that is the precursor to birth and then, uh, then birth leads to the inevitable end of, of death, uh, psychological death. So that uh, when we are, are recognizing that process and we're able to, to step back from that, then as we see those qualities of, of interest or enthusiasm, then we keep that, uh, when, there's mind, when there is mindfulness, when there is a he- true heedfulness, that mindfulness that's really aware of the situation, then we can go along with the things that we need to do and we can uh, yeah, acquire the things that are useful, but we're not getting bored into them. And we can lose the things that, that, that we love or things when things fall apart. They can go, but we don't find ourselves totally bereft and broken-hearted when they go. It's like, oh, well, that was sweet. Now it's a, now it's a memory. Okay. I, and so, so it goes. So that it's not an emotional flatness, but in, in a mysterious way it's actually a, like a, an emotional maturity. So that we're, we are fully feeling uh, the, the qualities of life. But there's a a profound, a profounder um, appreciation, a kind of more fundamental happiness, so that even though some there's a, a bitter experience, you know, something has just uh, some something has just fallen apart, or someone that we know has just passed away, or just some kind of painful experience. But uh, even in its passing, that 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 which, rec- which recognizes well, it, it had to go one day, or that was it was sweet, and now it, now it's over that we're able to tap into a, yes, this is how life is. How could it be otherwise? And that there's a, that, the, the profound happiness of that, the, the, 
the rightness of that or the, the basic orderliness of that. Yeah, this is how nature works. How could it be otherwise? Ah. So it's that kind of basic richness that, that we're able to tap into. So it's important to realize that with these teachings on Nibbana, we're not just trying to um, make ourselves into sort of not a, a kind of non-responsive uh, numb. It's not like the development of numbness <laughs> and trying to truly nullify our lives. It's not it at all. It's the, it's the opposite. It's, and it works in a mysterious way that uh, that you can both experience the quality of, of peacefulness and clarity in nirvana, even when there's a painful experience happening. You can have a, a, a physical pain uh, or some kind of emotional pain, but there can still be that basic quality of, of peace and clarity and and uh, a heart free from contention with that. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, I'm afraid it doesn't make sense to me. <laughs> um, I think that what, what while you were saying that, I was thinking of this, um, an android called Data. Uh, which was um, very popular in Star Trek, and he was he was someone who uh, would be able would fit into your pattern quite well because he he realized um, all the logical um, inroads and outroads of all the things you were saying, but he didn't really get upset about it, and he was able to to function even in the presence of great emotions both ways, and so I think that. Some of the things you might be asking um, um, for us to feel all the, the great positive things and the great negative things and, and still somehow just kind of let them all go, even if it's great grief or great pleasure, it seems a bit contradictory to me. It seems that you're asking, even though we are humans, not dogs or cats, and we, we know that, I think, you're asking us, I, I feel that it's, it's too much to ask of a human being to be able to do those things that you just got through asking. Am I way off base? Am I wrong? Well, on one level, it is too much to ask. And that's why the, the Buddha, his first thought after his enlightenment was, there's no point trying to convey this. You know? Because it was, he thought, this goes so completely against the, the, the stream of, of, um, uh, of our ordinary everyday thinking. But then he was persuaded that, well, for the, for the sake of those who have a little bit of dust in their eyes. So it, it's difficult to understand. But also it's a thing that we can get, we can get a feel for uh, in ourselves, just in, in the meditation. Also, I'm just reminded of a, a verse of William Blake's where he says, um, and you have to excuse the uh, gender-biased language, <laughs> uh, he who binds himself to a joy doth the winged life destroy. He that kisses a joy as it flies lives in eternity's sunrise. Kissing the joy as it flies. So it's that binding ourselves to a joy. It's a very human habit. It might seem like, yeah, but I, I love the tear. I mean, I want to weep. <laughs> And I, I want to get really, I want to get really excited, and I want to weep, and not, and not being that way is somehow kind of non-human. And, and I, I'm not uh, belittling that or, or negating that, because that's that's uh, it's very natural for us to to feel in that way. And, that, and for many of us, that's the 
when we felt most alive or most deeply connected with with life and and the world it's in those those um times of of intense contact it might seem like we're just trying to push that away or negate that but it's it's a mysterious thing it's like the more that you truly let go of of the of uh that that quality of of uh, identification and entanglement, then it's, it's mysterious. But the more fully identified with it, you find yourself to be. It's like because of oh, one one friend of ours. Um, uh, I remember him. Uh, he quoted it back to me that I'd said it. I don't actually remember saying it, but I remember <laughs> he told me I said it. Um, uh, was that you know when when we're we're following the, the practice because we, because we love the world so much we let go of it completely. And it's paradoxical. But it's also um, when we are, are um, in, in meditation or in our clearest moments you, we can see for ourselves there's a, a sense that when there's a, a complete openness to the situation and uh, no reservation on our part then we find ourselves attuned to others and attuned to our own inner nature in a way that, that we, we aren't when we're swept up in a, in a, a kind of more reactive or, or um, uh, entangled mode. And I can only describe that sort of in, in words, but it's, it's also it's more helpful maybe in meditation and, and um, using those quiet times to, to look at that and to to notice for ourselves that in our in our best in our, our moments of the sort of deepest qualities of, of attunement, then there is um, a, a, an unclutteredness, uh, a, a naturalness that's there, that is um, is really the, the essence of that. What I mean by non-attachment, and I don't, I, I'm not sort of attempting to make you feel different but uh, uh, I can't sort of change your experience but um, that, that's how I find it for myself and that um, it's not trying to just be a, sort of, uh, a data reception unit but actually there's a, there's a, a mysterious way it's like with, with in a way you can only get a sense of it around people who manifest that and so like my teacher Ajahn Chah, there was there was times when he uh, you you'd see him and he there'd be some some person would come and they'd be uh, describing some kind of ca- terrible experience in their in their um, family some terrible crisis and they're very upset and and they'd be telling him this the the, the account of it and um, and so part of him you could you could see was um, being very sort of cult, consoling and, and warm and compassionate. Part of and, and part of him was was extremely still, like was incredibly, just incredibly calm. But also, and, and he would also, you, you couldn't tell whether he was uh, laughing or crying. Yeah, he was like, what? How's he feeling? And it's like the, is he is he just crying because they're upset or is, is, is he actually laughing or is 
What's going on there? <laughs> but you could, when you let yourself just pay attention, you could see he was actually being all of those things. It was, he was both completely unshaken in himself, but also totally responding to the person that was there. He was feeling there uh, and feeling compassion for their, their suffering and their difficulty, but he wasn't getting wrapped up in it. And, uh, and so that you, you try and sort of pin down the expression on his face and you, you, you couldn't quite pin it down and you realize, well, you, it, you can't pin it down as a, as a concept. But when we are fully open-hearted in that way, then we both experience that, that strength of feeling that goes with the moment, both the rejoicing or the, the, the sadness, that it's there, and uh, we're able to also experience the kind of absurdity of it, and, and also the naturalness of it. You know, that, that how, how painful that we get caught up in such things and get carried away, and how, how utterly human it is to be so completely involved. It's like this. And there's a, uh, a, a kind of embodiment of that quality. That is beyond, really beyond words. And so that's why, that's why having a, a study day on Nibbana is kind of, it's tricky because it's, it's pointing to a, a, a wordless quality of attunement that enables us to um, respond to life in, in uh, different ways. Yeah, Ernie. You have to follow up a little on this gentleman's comment. Uh, in the latest issue of The Inquiring Mind, Wes Nisker has his usual article where he talks about the firsters and the thirders. Uh-huh. Where he talks about how many people in the practice are really in the practice as a way of working with the first noble truth, the first mm-hmm. the truth of suffering, which is getting our lives together and working in a way where we're not quite so caught up in all our stuff. And he describes himself as a firster. Mm-hmm. He also describes what's called the thirders, which are people who are really looking for some kind of transcendent experience, for some kind of understanding of this coolness, and this, this kind of... A, a, he's describing a different kind of relationship to the practice. And uh, you have any kind of comments on that? <laughs> have you read the article? I did, yes. Yeah. yeah. yeah Wes's column is the, is the one I always read in Inquiring Mind. <laughs> you can quote me on that. <laughs> Yeah, I, th- I thought it was quite insightful. I mean, he, he has a very uh, accurate vision in many ways of, of uh, how the world works. Um, I think the Buddha taught four noble truths for a purpose. <laughs> so I think in a way we need four. I mean, I appreciated Wes's perspective that, yeah, that you can maybe divide people into those patches in, in different sort of zones or different uh, uh, styles. But... Uh, in order for the for the, uh, the the process to work, I think we need all four, and that uh, that we will have tendencies to dwell upon the one or the other, and that if you're a thirder, you might want to sort of not really bother with number one and just go straight to <laughs> straight to transcendence, and the if you're a firster, you might want to you're really enjoying your wallowing, like, uh, but um, the uh, the the, the, the Buddha taught the Four Noble Truths in, in that format because it's, uh, it's, matched, it's mapped onto a traditional uh, Indian form of medical diagnosis. The, um, the precursor of Ayurveda and, uh, used the same format. So you start off with the symptom, dukkha, that's the, the nature of the ailment. 
Then, you, then the second one is the cause, what's, what's caused the ailment. The third one is the prognosis, yeah, is it curable or not? And then the fourth one is the treatment. And so he, he shows that format as, uh, as a, uh, an approach so that if you're going for a medical uh, and then all you get is the, well, let's just really spend all our, our time looking at the symptom <laughs> and, uh, and paying attention to the symptom, then it's, uh, or let's just, let's just um, worship the idea of a possibility of a cure then you're missing the point in both those respects and that you need both the, the diagnosis, the, you know, the, 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 the cause of the illness, the prognosis, and, and, the, and then the main thing is the treatment. <laughs> the, the fourth truth is, in a way, the, uh, uh, is the, the, in terms of a treatment, that's the main thing. But the third truth is the possibility of health. That's what it's aimed towards, is the, the state of well-being. And so the Buddha just mapped that medical uh, uh, format onto the spiritual malaise of, of um, dukkha, you know, that, that's, that, that kind of um, internal and uh, mental illness. <laughs> yeah, well, I think he's talking about things in terms of people's emphasis on what they're looking for. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, to work with the first noble truth, you need to work, you know, you need to work the path as well. Mm-hmm. But I think it's coming thinking about this as I, as I speak, I think it's coming from a different orientation of getting our lives together and having this idea of nirvana as a, an experience, whether it's momentary or for an hour or for the rest of your life, and working more toward that. And I think people who are working with jhanas, you know, if it's important, for people, for people who focus on you know, working with jhanas, I think they're moving more toward that experience of the openness and that kind of oneness and absolute reality, whatever you want to call it. But, yeah, of course, it takes the Four Noble Truths to work, work through them all. I can't say I, I remember in detail what was in Wesley's article. I, I did read it, <laughs> but uh, I, I can't say I remember you know, in, in detail how, exactly how he put it. But um, the, uh, to me, it's also... It, Having one of the, the aims or, or hopes for, for today is to get a sense of, yeah, this is something worth uh, nibbana, something worth understanding, worth aiming for, because we have uh, um, we don't have much of a language of, of defining that well-being. Like it's as it's, it's, uh, one of these um, mind and life conferences with the Dalai Lama. It was one of the I think as Alan Wallace pointed out that uh, in the the, the DSM. No, the DSM-4, the, the Diagnostic Manual, that you have like two and a half thousand pages of ailments and a half a page on well-being. Yeah. <laughs> that, that <laughs> it's just the, the concept of, uh, of health is vague to us, but we're really good on ailment. And so there's a culture. And, so he, uh, and the, the Dalai Lama was just, uh, oh, this is, this is very strange. <laughs> um, but uh, that having a sense and getting a feeling for what is the state of spiritual well-being when the heart is really in tune with reality. What is that? How do we feel that? What's that experience? So, and then you can take um, some of the ideas of talking about coolness or about uh, non, uh, non-entanglement and, and the, uh, the, the words carry certain associations with them and, and we ascribe to them certain qualities. 
But the experience of that might be very, very different. And so that uh, you know, what uh, I hope to with, with today is to get a sense for encouraging people to explore, well, what, what is it that I'm working towards and how does this relate to this, these qualities that Buddha's talking about in all these teachings, this, this aspect of, of Nibbana, of um, uh, a deep uh, coolness and clarity within ourselves. Why is that so valuable? Why would he highlight that as the goal of all spiritual uh, development, the pinnacle of, of spiritual development. Why would he characterize it in that way? And that, um, and to have that as an impetus for for investigating, look, looking at that and say, what what am I really doing this for? Yeah, I really like to come to IMC and hang out with these people, and <laughs> I see it makes my life a bit better. But what what what's what am I aiming towards? And then in clarifying that that goal, and then seeing whereby those um, that that goal can be. Uh, arrive that, then that, that helps us along the way. We don't really have a, uh, a a clear goal or a sense of what we're aiming for, then it's hard to know whether we're following the right signs or not. I mean, as Yogi Berra said, <laughs> if you don't know where you're going, you might end up somewhere else. <laughs>